0: At sax.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Mata, and I have an art history degree, which Great Lakes student loans will not let me forget about, probably ever. Uh, So even if I don't use it in my everyday life, here we are on my podcast. (laughs) Before we dive into the episode, this is your cursory reminder to rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your mom about the show. Tell my mom that you like the show. That would help me out a lot. You know, the usual I will go through the full spiel at the end of the show, but everything, all the places you can find me, are linked in the episode description. If you're new here, the premise of Art of History is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. I will let you know what that's going to be in just a moment, as well as the question we're seeking to answer today. I will also post the artwork that is central to the episode and some supplemental images over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast. While you're there, go ahead and give me a follow. It will only save you time for future episodes. I will guide us through a look at the piece, or pieces in the case of today's episode, together as we explore the bigger picture behind them. Our story for this episode is one that has been on my list from the very beginning of me knowing I was going to do a podcast, and it is one that I have received several requests for in the past year. I am super excited to be diving into tulip mania today. You may be familiar with that term from the book or the 2017 film Tulip Fever, uh, or maybe from history class or economics, which I never took, uh, which I think is obvious to anyone who knows me in real life. If you're not familiar, when we say tulip mania, we are talking about a specific cultural phenomenon that has long been painted as the most famous economic bubble and market collapse in history. The classic narrative tells us that the entire Dutch population descended into sheer madness over tulips, yes, the flower, from about 1634 to 1637. But how much of that enduring legacy of tulip mania is truth? And how much is, shall we say, embellished? There is artwork that can tell us the answer, and I'm here to tell you the story of that. This is going to be a really fun one, Um, Like I cannot wait to dive into this craziness with you, so without further ado, our setting for our episode today is 17th century Holland, smack in the middle of the Dutch Golden Age. Smithsonian Magazine tells us that the Netherlands, quote, experienced a major demographic shift during its war for independence from Spain, which began in the 1560s and continued into the 1600s. Part of this involved the Thirty Years' War, which someday some podcast host will do an excellent job of explaining. Um, I have not seen that happen yet. Today is not that day, and I am not that podcast host, so we're going to leave that there for now. But it was during this period that I think we can reasonably narrow down a bit more to roughly 1588 to 1648 that merchants arrived in port cities like Amsterdam, Harlem, which is spelled with two A's, and Delft and established trading outfits, including the famous Dutch East India Company. Maybe you've heard of it? I don't know. This explosion in international commerce brought enormous fortune to the Netherlands and in their newly independent nation after the culmination of all of these wars, which I cannot express to you how much I don't know what happened there. The Dutch were mainly led by urban oligarchies, comprised of wealthy merchants, unlike other European countries of the era, which were controlled by the landed nobility. I am relying very, very heavily on one book in particular for this episode. It is titled Tulip Mania, Money, Honor, and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age. And in it, author Anne Goldgar, which is a name you're going to be hearing a lot, writes, the resultant new faces, new money, and new ideas helped to revolutionize the Dutch economy economy in the late 16th century. Holland.com, described as your official guide for visiting the Netherlands, tells us that all of this economic development, quote, attracted immigrants and stimulated the growth of the main cities and ports. Even as the Dutch Golden Age, quote, laid the foundation for the Netherlands as we know it today, this period also, they acknowledge, had a dark side, slavery and colonialism. Holland.com was very adamant, however, that Dutch museums do indeed devote attention to those issues today, which is good. All of this economic success contributed to a wealth of Dutch material culture which still permeates Western culture today. Most significantly, the Dutch interest in collecting and displaying items from the natural world in so-called wunderkammern, or or cabinets of curiosity, gave rise to the very concept of collecting and a museum itself. These repositories for wondrous and exotic objects were entire rooms, not actual cabinets or closets, used to display the owner or curator's discerning tastes. There were roughly three classes of objects that could be deposited into your wunderkammer. Sculptures and paintings curious items from home or abroad, and antlers, horns, claws, feathers, and other things belonging to strange and curious animals. As you can imagine, these rooms could get really weird, with items in them ranging from the man-made to the natural, from fine oil paintings to seashells and animal skeletons, to broken pieces of weaponry and strings of beads. Cabinets of curiosity served several functions, being a source of entertainment for guests and helping to elevate the owner in society. The more exotic your collection of stuff, the higher society would regard you, for surely you must be wealthy and successful to have acquired your, I don't know, crocodile skull. As the Dutch economy changed, so too then did social interactions and cultural values. "...a growing interest in natural history and a fascination with the exotic among the merchant class meant that goods from the Ottoman Empire and farther east fetched high prices. The influx of these goods also drove men of all social classes to acquire expertise in newly in-demand areas." One example of this, highlighted by Anne Golgar, is fish auctioneer Adrian Conan, whose watercolor illustrated manuscript called Whale Book allowed him to actually meet the president of Holland. By the end of the 17th century, the word cabinet would come specifically to mean a room that housed a collection of art, but it may have still been permeated by trinkets and things from the natural world. But, largely, collections of stuff were eventually funneled into more appropriate spheres. All of those interesting animal parts and geological specimens, for example, began to be taken more seriously for scientific study, and the arts and sciences were flourishing as just one of the many skilled crafts that the Dutch were coming to be renowned for. This is clearly demonstrated by the fact that some of the most famous paintings in our art history are by the Dutch masters. Rembrandt, Vermeer, Halls, and Steen come to mind. If that list feels incomplete when you think of Dutch painters, however, maybe your favorite northern renaissance painter is missing from it, like the ones that come to mind for me. Rubens, Van Eyck, uh, Van Dyck, and van der Weyden. It's probably because they were actually Flemish, not Dutch. We will touch more on that in a little bit, as it also pertains to the artist who will lead us into our topic at hand today. That is Jan Bruegel the Elder. Bruegel is known to history as one of the most celebrated flower painters of his age. You know all of those still lifes of flowers that hang in art museums and your grandma's house with seemingly equal, never-ending quantities? Yeah, we have Bruegel and his contemporaries to thank for those. Bruegel worked across several genres, including the already established schools of history and landscape painting, and he excelled in those. But he was also a pioneer in the genre of flower painting, and that's what I think most people now remember him for. Why flowers, however? Why is that such an accomplishment? Let me give you a rather anecdotal, partial answer. I was having this conversation with a friend at a museum this summer. They asked me what differentiated a flower painting that the museum had newly acquired by a contemporary painter from one that was done in, say, 1620. Why are artists still looking at flowers and putting them onto canvases, and why are we still buying them? I couldn't really give an answer at the time. I think, as my art history degree requires me to do every so often, I responded with questions of my own. But I do think that the answer is somewhere in this episode today. It's not so much about what the flower looks like that makes us want to put it onto a canvas. It's about what it represents. I think we can be reasonably sure that every possible physical depiction of a flower has already been done, but there's always going to be the chance that someone new comes along and sees something in that rose or daisy or tulip, perhaps, which has never meant precisely the same thing to a person before. And I think that's what was going on in 16th and 17th century Holland when, yeah, artists had painted flowers before. But never is something that could stand on their own merit as the subject of a painting. Flowers had been decorative or symbolic before, but they had never, I think, warranted the spotlight that was about to be placed on them. And we do have the Dutch Golden Age to thank for that, at least in Western art history. We sadly don't know too much about the birth of flower painting as a genre. The first Dutch flower painting we know of was completed in 1603, but there was likely a lead up of maybe 50 years where artists were honing in on this budding movement. (laughs) And actually, we know that what we do see of surviving flower paintings created in the 17th century is only part of the whole picture. Art historians Klaska Musilar and Derek Phillips—I'm I'm very sorry if I butchered that—have estimated that of the 10 million plus paintings produced in the Netherlands between 1580 and 1800, less than one percent have survived. All we can say for certain is that in the first years of the 17th century, flower paintings became popular enough that an entire school of artists specialized in them. School, when we talk about art history, is usually just a group of artists all specializing the same thing. They didn't all necessarily go to the same school to receive this education. Maybe they trained together, or maybe they lived in the same area, but also maybe not. The popularity of floral still lifes grew out of developments in botany and horticulture, (laughs) which accompanied the exploration and wealth of the Dutch Golden Age. Botanical gardens were springing up where, quote, new imports could be acclimated, and new varieties could be bred. A trade market began to take shape, focused on botanical specimens. The most popular flower varieties available were anemones, hyacinths, fritillaries, which I looked up, they're beautiful, and, of course, tulips. These all arrived in Western Europe in the second half of the late 1500s, and in the new school of flower painting that sprang up to accompany this trade, the highest praise was given to panels that depicted a number of different flower species, or a large range of colors, patterns, and textures. I think when it came to the tulip, the first thing you had was the perfect storm of characteristics to feed into what the Dutch wanted from a flower. You had the bright color, the interesting shape, and even its life cycle is fascinating. I don't know if you, dear listener, have ever grown or had tulips in your home, but they go through a really unique visual evolution, from a bulb that looks kind of like an onion to a delicate bud through flowering to petals opening and finally falling. Modern art viewers are actually sometimes confused when they encounter uh, older paintings of tulips, because these paintings often show the flowers as we would now think of them as past their prime, with the petals not in a neat little cup shape, but wide open, some looking ready to fall off. This is what we would think of as a dead or dying tulip, and we'd be ready to throw it out the backyard. We will get into why that was still an acceptable way to paint these tulips later in the episode. Smithsonian Magazine tells us of the quote-unquote discovery of tulips. Quote, originally found growing wild in the valleys of the Tian Shan Mountains, on the border where China and Tibet meet Afghanistan and Russia, tulips were cultivated in Istanbul as early as 1055. By the 15th century, Sultan Mehmed II of the Ottoman Empire had so many flowers in his twelve gardens that he required a staff of 920 gardeners. Tulips were among the most prized flowers, eventually becoming a symbol of the Ottomans, writes gardening correspondent for the Independent, Anna Pavord in The Tulip. By the mid-16th century, tulips were the hot new bombshell entering Europe. They were rare, they were beautiful, and they were therefore expensive. Anne Goldgar writes, quote, To us the ultimate in Dutch domesticity, in the 1630s, the fragile and changeable bloom represented novelty, unpredictability, excitement, a splash of the exotic east, and a collector's item for the curious and the wealthy. Some of the most beautiful paintings of tulips were completed by, as I said, Jan Bruegel the Elder. Almost forgot that this was an art podcast for a minute, but uh, here we go. We're going to get into it. Bruegel was born in Brussels in 1568. He was the second son of Peter Bruegel the Elder, a prominent Flemish Renaissance painter known for his landscape and peasant scenes, so this is actually a family of artists that goes through several dynasties. Important note also to drop us into history a bit more, which I did allude to earlier, Bruegel was not Dutch nor was he Belgian. Being born in Brussels in the late 16th century meant that he would have inhabited a Dutch-speaking area in the north of Belgium, sort of straddling the Netherlands to the north and Belgium proper to the south. This Flemish region of Belgium, or Flanders as it was called, gave us a lot of artists who we might think of today as Dutch. Among them, again, Jan van Eyck, Peter Paul Rubens, and Anthony van Dyck. Bruegel apparently received his early training in Brussels from his maternal grandmother, Maiken Verhulst. He would live most of his life with Antwerp as his home base, but he did travel widely throughout Europe. In 1590, when he was 21, Bruegel traveled to Naples and settled in Rome from 1592 to 1594, where he worked under the patronage of Cardinal Asanio Colonna. While there, he met the artist Paulus Brill, who was also from Antwerp, whose brightly colored and delicately rendered small-scale paintings on copper greatly influenced Bruegel's work. In Milan, he met his lifelong patron, Cardinal Frederigo Borromeo, who considered Bruegel's work, quote, the lightness of nature itself. Bruegel's correspondence with Borromeo has revealed much about his working procedures and his desire to demonstrate God's greatness through pictorial representations of nature. In 1597, shortly after returning to Antwerp, Jan, Jan, (laughs) we're on first name terms, Bruegel joined the Guild of St. Luke. Guilds were associations that regulated a certain type of industry, so all the painters in a city would hope to join the guild in order to obtain patrons and earn commissions. If you worked your way up the hierarchy in the guild, you would be expected to take on apprentices to teach them the craft. Saint Luke was often the saint's name given to guilds for painters and sculptors, as he was said to have painted images of the Virgin Mary and child, and is therefore the patron saint of artists. He's also, fun fact, the patron saint of doctors and surgeons, something I find fascinating um, because the college major, I don't know if you know this, but the college major that produces students who do the best on the MCATs, besides pre-med, of course, is actually art history. It's something about teaching you how to observe. Anyway... (laughs) Antwerp had been one of the first cities, if not the first, to found a guild of St. Luke. Wikipedia has 1382 listed as a possible founding year. And as a master in St. Luke's guild, Bruegel had clearly established himself very quickly as an important member of the Antwerp artistic community, serving as its dean in 1602. He was clearly therefore celebrated in his own time. In 1599, he had married Isabella de Jode, the daughter of an engraver, with whom he had two children, including Jan Bruegel the Younger. I would tell you not to worry about mixing these two up, the elder and the younger, except that Jan the Second will become a central figure in the second half of our story. Apologies in advance. Isabella died shortly after the birth of their second child, leaving Bruegel a widower, widower, I can't say that word, I've tried like three times. A widower with two small children in 1605 he remarried to a woman named katerina von Marienburg, with whom he had eight more children bruegel still the elder for now was a well-connected artist visiting the court of emperor rudolf ii in prague and serving as court painter to archduke albert and archduchess isabella the regents in the southern netherlands he was also the collaborative type in 1613, he traveled with fellow artist Peter Paul Rubens and often worked on paintings with him. He frequently provided the lush, warm-toned woodland scenes that were densely populated with exotic animals and flowers as frames or backdrops for other artists' human figures, including Rubens. Bruegel would come to receive three nicknames as an artist. He was first called Paradise Bruegel as a reference to his invention of the genre of the paradise landscape. Interestingly, his younger brother, Peter Bruegel, the younger, was nicknamed Hell Bruegel because it was believed that he was the author of a number of paintings with depictions of fire and grotesque imagery. I guess you could call those hell landscapes. Some of these paintings, though, have now been also attributed to Jan Bruegel the Elder. Another nickname, which I think uh, was for obvious reasons, was Flower Bruegel. Obviously, again, I hope, (laughs) this is a reference to his fame as a painter of, although not a specialist in, flowers. Bruegel didn't invent, again, the practice of actually painting flowers, But many would say that he turned it into an art form in and of itself. He also, it is believed, invented, quote, garland paintings, which were devotional images of the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus surrounded by garlands or wreaths of flowers. These paintings were a reaction against Protestant ideals that refuted the cult of images. So this was a way of kind of sticking it to the Protestants and saying, well, if you don't like our iconography here, I'm going to make it more lavish. These were also collaborative images, Bruegel would often paint the flowers, while another artist would fill in the figural elements. Know your limits, I guess. And Jan's third nickname was Velvet Bruegel. Now this was not because he was particularly adept at rendering fabric, but rather because of his ability to paint rich and delicate textures. Quote, his sensitive handling of paint, which ranged from thick impostos to thin glazes, created effervescent forms imbued with extraordinary naturalness. So there I think you have the beginnings of why this artist, who was neither Dutch nor predominantly a flower painter, became so influential among his Dutch contemporaries. Holland was coming to prize depictions of rare and exotic blooms that demonstrated, well, the range of scarcity and exoticism that the nation was bringing in. The National Gallery in Washington, D.C. writes, quote, Among Jan Bruegel the Elder's many talents was his ability to bring to life the visual splendor of the natural world. Each tulip, rose, columbine, anemone, and even little insects or butterflies comes alive under his brush, belying the very notion that this painting should be called a still life. Bruegel's first recorded flower painting included no less than 72 varieties of spring and summer blooms. From the auction house Christie's, this was quote, made for his patron Cardinal Federico Borromeo in 1606. Bruegel discussed in 1606 his commencement of a floral picture, noteworthy quote, as much for its naturalness as for the beauty and rarity of various flowers. Some are unknown and little seen in this area. For this, I have been to Brussels in order to depict some few flowers from nature that are not found in Antwerp. The expense and rarity of exotic cultivated blooms made both their real and painted forms valuable and desirable. Bruegel and his contemporaries worked from nature. Bringing home the flora that he depicted in his tightly composed still lifes, he often went great distances to find rare examples. When flowering plants had run their course around August and September, that was when landscape season began. Cardinal Borromeo wrote that, quote, when winter encumbers and restricts everything with ice, he would still be able to enjoy the very stable and endurable flowers which Bruegel had painted for him. And Bruegel was also pleased with his own ability. In a letter from August 1606 to Borromeo, he writes, In the painting of the flowers, all made from life in this picture, I have invested all my skill. I do not believe that so many rare and different flowers have ever been painted before, nor finished with such diligence. It will be a fine sight in the winter. Some of the colors are very close to the real thing. I find this interesting because there's no pretension on the artist's part to any higher meaning. We're not concerned with applying any allegories or metaphors to the flowers. Roegel's emphasis is on his accuracy and skill as a painter, and on the rarity and abundance of the blooms that he is painting. The painting that I have highlighted over on the Instagram does date from a bit later than this period where he's writing, um, from about 1608 to 1610, and it is titled Still Life with Tulips, Chrysanthemums, Narcissi, Roses, Irises, and Other Flowers in a Glass Vase. So it's exactly what you would expect. (laughs) It is an oil painting on copper, the technique that Bruegel learned back in Rome at the beginning of his career. This piece continues that quote insistence on observation from nature which bruegel had been honing and while maybe not extravagant in the number or types of flowers the arrangement is pleasing to the eye bright shades of red yellow pink and blue cause the eye to dance around and they're broken up by dusty shades of white it is a more realistic arrangement than some of his earliest ones i will put a comparison on the instagram for you The glass vase also adds another tour de force element, showcasing Bruegel's technical skill in his ability to paint transparent as well as opaque surfaces. The Dutch emerging interest in the natural world, its wonders and its curiosities, can further be appreciated in this artwork through the inclusion of a variety of insects alongside the flowers. You can see a butterfly on the left hand side, a fly on the central white blossom, and a striped beetle on the table. Bruegel's paintings of these uh, would probably have been based on specimens that he had been able to observe again firsthand in the Wunderkammer of interested naturalists and collectors. Eventually, cabinets of curiosity would include vases of rare flowers alongside meticulously detailed paintings of, quote, impossible profusions of blooms, arrangements that would have been difficult to assemble in reality, given the disparate times at which each flower blossomed. The juxtaposition there would have been of pleasing interest for discriminating collectors, quote, presenting the opportunity to marvel at the skill of a painter and to compare his detailed rendering of nature with the real thing. This would have also allowed guests of the Wunderkammern, where natural and man-made objects were presented on an equal playing field, to ponder who was the more skilled creator of such beauty. Was it God in generating the natural world, or the, quote, intermediary of his servant, man, who depicted it so richly. I'm not touching that question from a philosophical standpoint. I never took philosophy. But Bruegel's still lifes were a testament to the wonders of nature and his own astonishing skill, as well as being a reflection of the divine presence in the earthly sphere. All of these ideas were co-mingling in Holland at the time. Bruegel was producing these still lifes a full 25 or so years before the dawning of tulip mania. Remember that? That's the point of the episode. Um, But I do think that he picked up on some of the themes that would contribute to the economic bubble and the fallout from it. For example, in the 1608 to 1610 painting, he has chosen so-called broken tulips as his focal point. One is a dusty pink with red stripes and the other is red with white stripes. Over the years, the Dutch had learned that tulips which grew from a seed would take seven to 12 years to flower, but planting a tulip bulb itself could produce a flower the very next year. They had also become particularly fascinated with the rare broken tulips. These were bulbs that produced striped and speckled flowers in different hues, rather than showing just one solid and expected color. The effect was completely random and unpredictable, but the growing demand for these rare, broken bulb tulips led naturalists to further study ways that they could reproduce them. Broken tulips were later, much later, discovered to be the result of a mosaic virus that actually makes the bulbs sickly and less likely to reproduce. Quote, since breaking was unpredictable, some have characterized tulip mania among growers as a gamble, with growers vying to produce better and more bizarre feathering, writes economist Peter Garber. He goes on, the high market price for tulips to which the current version of tulip mania refers actually draws upon the prices for particularly beautiful broken bulbs. So it wasn't just regular tulips that were driving people crazy, if that's any consolation. As the Dutch amassed their wealth and prestige, rare tulips were bought as prized display pieces for the wealthiest citizens. But before too long, as we've seen recently with things like the phenomenon of Ray Dunn merchandise at TJ Maxx, and that weird, I don't know, what was it, a a toddler couch (laughs) that the moms on Facebook were all going wild over in the early pandemic. As was the case with those items, tulip trading became a market all of its own. I'm going to take a short break here, and when I come back, we will dive headfirst into the madness, or so we've been told, that was tulip fever.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
1: At Sax.com,
0: it's easy to find your new vibe. since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: And we are back. As I was saying before the break, and as recent scholarship on Tulip Mania has underscored... Tulips lent themselves really, really well to being the object of economic speculation. Lisa Jardine, the author of a book called Going Dutch, How England Plundered Holland's Glory, writes that, quote, Those which promised to produce the most highly sought after red and yellow, purple and white, or red and white flowers, because they had produced such blooms in the past, or were the offsets from bulbs that had, could be sold for very large sums. The promise of the bloom lay resolutely in the future. What changed hands was a few small brown bulbs the size of an onion. The purchaser was obliged to accept the promise of a speculator bloom on trust and to pay up front. And Anne Goldgar points out that, quote, As luxury objects, tulips fit well into a culture of both abundant capital and new cosmopolitanism. Tulips required several things from their buyer, expertise, an aesthetic sense, an appreciation for the quote-unquote exotic, and of course, money. And after speculators had poured all that money into tulip bulbs, they only produced flowers for about a week, but quote, for tulip lovers, that week was a glorious one. They were also notoriously fragile and could quickly die on you without careful attention and cultivation. This is why you will see paintings not only depicting that quintessential tulip shape that we know and love, but also what we think of today as a fading bloom. The Dutch prized these flowers so highly that every stage of their life cycle was precious and worthy of preserving. Here's where we enter the true period that history has branded as tulip mania. Here is also, sadly, where myth comes into play. This will be a slight letdown to you if you like the sensationalism aspect to your consumption of history, and especially if you thought Tulip Fever 2017 was a good movie. Um, It was a little cringe, but it was aesthetically very beautiful. But I do think the story of how we got this notion of a frenzy that maybe didn't actually happen is also fascinating, and it is the direct result of artistic renderings of the time period. So here we go. Scottish journalist Charles Mackay wrote in his popular 1841 work, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, quote, The rage among the Dutch to possess tulips was so great that the ordinary industry of the country was neglected, and the population, even to its lowest dregs, embarked in the tulip trade. A golden bait hung temptingly out before the people, and one after the other they rushed to the tulip marts like flies around a honeypot. Nobles, citizens, farmers, mechanics, seamen, footmen, maidservants, even chimney sweeps and old clotheswomen dabbled in tulips. McKay is the one who gave us the idea of and the term for tulip mania. If you're getting some alarm bells going off by now, knowing that this understanding of tulip fever all stems from a melodramatic, moralizing Victorian, you are on the right track. But if McKay's line is to be believed, everyone from the top tier of Dutch society down to the poorest peasants were being overtaken by the frenzy brought on by tulips, buying up the bulbs at high prices and selling them in hopes of turning a profit. Smithsonian Magazine concisely sums up this viewpoint in a similar way. Quote, Companies formed just to deal with the tulip trade, which reached a fever pitch in late 1636. But by February 1637, the bottom fell out of the market. More and more people defaulted on their agreement to buy the tulips at the prices they'd promised, and the traders who had already made their payments were left in debt or bankrupted. At least, that's what has always been claimed. It is absolutely true that for a short period, around the summer of 36, prices for the bulbs of some particularly highly prized varieties of tulips rose to enormous heights. And yes, in early 37, the bottom fell out of the tulip market. Lisa Jardine's description, this time purposely hyperbolic, goes something like this, speculative sellers who had bought bulbs at high prices to sell on at a profit found themselves with worthless items on their hands. Those who had purchased at the top of the market and who would indeed see flowers as soon as the summer's blooming season came around, nevertheless refused to pay the balance on the exorbitant amounts they had been foolish enough to part with for their prize purchases in the overheated markets. Among those who had been caught up in the tulip craze, many were ruined, reduced to bankruptcy by purchase prices far beyond anything reasonable for a mere flower. Do you, are you starting to hear maybe the quiet qualifiers in that description? Those who had bought at high prices, those who had bought at the top of the market. McKay had claimed that the Dutch bubble bursting wreaked havoc on the Dutch economy. Quote, many who for a brief season had emerged from the humbler walks of life were cast back into their original obscurity, he wrote. Substantial merchants were reduced almost to beggary, and many a representative of a noble line saw the fortunes of his house ruined beyond redemption. This, simply it turns out, was never true. The truth, as it sometimes is, was far less sensational. Anne Golgar, who I have quoted extensively so far in this episode, was previously a professor of early modern history at King's College London, and was the author of this very influential recent book. Again, that was Tulip Mania, Money, Honor, and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age. She said, quote, I always joke that the book should be called Tulip Mania, more boring than you thought. Prices of tulips did indeed inflate in the 1630s, and there was that crash in 1637. But tulip bulbs continued to command serious, albeit more reasonably, prices overall throughout the 17th century, until they were finally displaced by the newly fashionable flower, the hyacinth. According to popular legend, the tulip craze took hold of all levels of Dutch society. In fact, according to Goldgar, quote, there weren't that many people involved, and the economic repercussions were pretty minor. I couldn't find anybody that went bankrupt. If there had been really a wholesale, wholesale destruction of the economy, as the myth suggests, that would have been a much harder thing to face. And when she says she, quote, couldn't find anybody, she means that literally. Goldgar spent years conducting research inside the archives of Dutch cities like Amsterdam um, and Harlem, the center of the tulip trade. Yes, I did just skip a few uh, city names that I could not pronounce there. She collected 17th-century manuscript data from public notaries, small claims courts, wills, and correspondence. And what she found was not an irrational and widespread tulip craze, but a relatively small and short-lived market for an exotic luxury. She, quote, only identified about 350 people who were involved in the trade, although she does acknowledge that that number is probably on the low side because she didn't look at every single town in the Netherlands. But among those who were involved in the tulip trade, they were also, quote, very often connected with each other in various ways, through a profession, family, or religion. Most of the buyers were the sort you would expect to be speculating in luxury goods, people who could afford it. They were successful merchants and artisans, not chambermaids and peasants. There were also professional horticulturalists, and they sold the tulip bulbs to other keen gardeners, or those looking to be, in order to up their social profile. And these merchants did engage in a frantic tulip trade, and they did pay incredibly high prices for some bulbs. Tulip prices did spike specifically from December 1636 to February 1637, with some of the most prized bulbs, like the coveted Switzer, experiencing a 12-fold price jump. And people weren't spending thousands for one single flower either. Jardine says that, quote, one of the beauties of flower bulbs of any kind is that they can be bought in quantities to suit the pocket of the buyer. Where André Mollet bought tulip bulbs by the thousand to stock the uh, parterres of St. James's Palace in London, owners of a smaller plot of land could purchase them individually to add color and dash to a modest bed. The most expensive tulip receipts that Golgar found were for 5,000 guilders, which was the going rate for a nice house in 1637. But these exorbitant prices were outliers. She only found 37 people who paid more than 300 guilders for a tulip bulb, which was the equivalent of what a skilled craftsman could earn in a year. And we do know as people (laughs) that the rich and aspiring rich will always be willing to splurge at that level for appearances sake. Golgar also wasn't able to find a single case of an individual who went bankrupt after the tulip market crashed. Even the Dutch painter Jan van Goyen, who allegedly lost everything in the tulip crash, appears to have been uh, done in by land speculation, not the tulip trade. The real economic fallout in Golgar's assessment was far more contained and manageable. When some buyers announced that they couldn't pay the high price that they had previously agreed to, the market did fall apart and cause a small crisis, but only because it undermined social expectations. Quote, in this case, it was very difficult to deal with the fact that almost all of your relationships are based on trust. And people said, I don't care that I said I'm going to buy this thing. I don't want it anymore, and I'm not going to pay for it there was really no mechanism to make people pay because the courts were unwilling to get involved. So kind of like the opposite of where we are now with Elon Musk, um, agreeing to buy Twitter and then backing out and still being obligated to pay money anyway. But Golgar goes on quote, the people who stood to lose the most money in the tulip market, like Elon Musk, were wealthy enough that losing a thousand guilders wasn't going to cause them great problems. It's distressing and annoying, but it didn't have any real effect on production. There are, of course, other examples of this small-scale tulip fallout to be found. From court records, Goldgar found evidence of reputations lost and relationships broken when buyers who promised to pay 100 or 1,000 guilders for a tulip refused to pay up. In an economy based on trade and elaborate credit relationships, this would have amounted to a moment of culture shock, but it affected only those few who had actually bought into the frenzy. Your TLDR for today, tulip mania did not affect all levels of society, and it didn't cause the collapse of industry in Amsterdam and elsewhere that we remember. I love this uh, decidedly economist take here. Quote, while the lack of data precludes a solid conclusion, the results of the study indicate that the bulb speculation was not obvious madness. So if tulip mania wasn't actually a calamity, why was it made out to be one? And why are we so ready and willing to believe that it was? Golgar sums it up nicely. Tulips were something that was fashionable and people pay for fashion. The apparent ridiculousness of it was played up at the time to make fun of the people who didn't succeed. And in part, that played out in the art being produced before, during, and after Tulip Mania. Let's take a look at two other pieces of artwork that show us what this looked like in action before we get into the why this happened. These are by Jan Bruegel the Younger, yes, the son of the same Jan Bruegel who was launching flower painting as a respected genre at the top of the episode. Jan Bruegel the Elder died of cholera in Antwerp in January 1625, so he missed the height of tulip mania, such that it was. But his sons, who received artistic training, were among those who carried his style well into the 17th and 18th centuries. Jan Bruegel the Younger, for example, had studied with his father and eventually ran a large workshop creating paintings in his father's style. Some of these were copies to which he would affix his father's signature, and today it's often difficult to tell the difference between their paintings that were done around the same time. After his father's death, Jan the Younger took over his father's Antwerp studio and followed in his footsteps to also become dean of the Guild of St. Luke in 1630 from the Getty Museum, quote, his clients included the Austrian and French courts, and he may have visited France in the 1650s. While Jan the Younger painted many subjects, he is best known for landscapes whose subjects ranged from villages, to mythological scenes, to allegories, and to a new category, animals in landscapes. (laughs) Imagine animals in a landscape being a new and exciting category of art. I can't. Um, The quote goes on, his allegories depicted the senses, the elements, the seasons, and abundance. Like his father, he created landscape backgrounds for many painters, including Peter Paul Rubens. Where Bruegel the Elder's floral still lifes brought new complexity and depth to the emerging genre, Jan the Younger carried it forward, playing more with composition and applying more allegorical elements. I think it's fair to say of the flower paintings of both father and son that the whole was always greater than the sum of its parts, but Jan the Younger brings the slightest touch more symbolism into some of his uh, flower works. Here with some distance between the artist and the shifting tides of Dutch culture that had happened at the turn of the century, I do feel more comfortable reading into the visual elements as symbols. Flowers would eventually come to be heavily employed as vanitas symbols, signifiers of the transience of life and the surety of death. Fallen petals, the casualties of the brief life of cut flowers, could be equated with the short time granted to man to walk the earth. Insects as well reminded the viewer of short lifespans, and they left decay in their wake as they ate away at the leaves of these blooms. Flowers could also be used to represent religious ideas without employing overtly religious imagery. Lilies stood in for purity and represented the Virgin Mary, as did roses. Corn, caterpillars, and butterflies were symbols for resurrection. Jan Bruegel the Younger did not stop at sneaking symbolism into flower still lifes, however. He also produced works which pretty much hit the viewer over the head with his intended meaning. I'm referring to the two works, which you'll also find over on the Instagram. These are a satire of Tulip Mania and an allegory of Tulip Mania. These have both been dated to about 1640 to 1650. So the decade give or take after the height of Tulip Fever. One is set in a yard of sorts with a porch on the left of the scene. And the other is set, it seems on that same porch. There's a lot to unpack in these panels, so I would urge you to pull them up and uh, we'll take a close look together. We'll start with the paintings set in the yard, where monkeys, yes, I said monkeys, in 17th century Dutch dress are shown dealing in tulips. It's not hard to immediately then uh, conclude that this is a satirical commentary on speculators during the time of tulip mania. Klaus Ertz, a German art historian who specializes in the Bruegel artistic dynasty, has this to say of the monkeys. Quote, the monkey plays an important role in occidental painting. In medieval cathedral sculpture, it symbolizes evil, while in Renaissance art we encounter it as a personification of man. Starting out from these basic ideas, which led to the use of the monkey motif in painting for cryptic and ironic meanings developed in Flanders in the 16th and 17th centuries. Painters could use the figure of the monkey to express moral judgment and dubious traits of human behavior. And here we see these little guys engaging in activities that we can only presume were sites commonly seen during the tulip bubble from 1634 to 1637, or at least that is what Bruegel the Younger would have us believe. On the left side of the first painting is a bed of tulips. Most of their petals have stripes, telling us that these are some of the more expensive broken varietals. In front of that flower bed, a monkey stands holding a document, The sword at his waist tells us that he is upper class or a nobleman. According to the Franz Hall's museum where this painting is stored, this monkey is reading a list of prices for the rare tulip bulbs. On the terrace behind this monkey, a lavish business dinner is in progress. At the bottom of the porch steps, one monkey points to flowering tulips while another holds up a tulip and a money bag, perhaps calling for offers or celebrating a purchase. Two monkeys shake hands, perhaps concluding a deal. One in the mid-foreground draws up a bill of sale. The owl on his shoulder here likely does not symbolize his wisdom, but rather the lack thereof, so his foolishness. Just to his right, a different monkey weighs some tulip bulbs, while two others sit at a table to count gold and silver coins. To the far right side of this painting, we seem to see uh, a situation that befell the unfortunate after the tulip bubble would have burst. One monkey urinates on a pile of rare red striped tulips, which are now worthless and abandoned from the time they've been picked from that flower bed to the time they've come over to this side of the canvas. Behind him, another monkey enters a gate holding a bunch of yellow striped tulips in one arm, wiping his tears with a handkerchief. Possibly he is debt-ridden due to his speculation, and is now being brought before the court. Nearby, another monkey cries, a bunch of tulips also in his hand. In the background, one monkey sits like a nobleman, astride a horse. There is a duel in progress, perhaps between monkeys who quarreled over prices, or who blame each other for their part in the collapse of the market. And at the far right, one monkey speculator is carried off to his grave, Did he die from shock or perhaps of a ruined reputation? Perhaps Bruegel is telling us that the tulip fever was a situation where monkey see monkey do was the prevailing mode of operation. As bulbs were weighed and money changed hands, all it seems for nothing. He is clearly ridiculing human tulip speculators as brainless monkeys, turning the work of art into a moralizing lesson for the folly of speculating over something as transient and inconsequential as a flower. I've pulled the second image by Bruegel, which is also satirical, um, just to show you that this was a repeating theme, telling us that he was not producing these images merely because he was interested in the theme of tulips or human folly, but also because of a demand for such pictures among his buyers, his customers. Many of the same episodes, including the uh, urinating monkey, are portrayed in the painting set on the terrace or the porch. But I will draw your attention to some new elements in this one, like on the right-hand side, a male monkey being beaten by his wife with a set of keys. Klaus Ertz suggests that perhaps he, quote, paid for these tulips with all that was left from their housekeeping money. Behind them, another monkey looks upwards in horror as gold coins from the sack he holds close to his chest turn to bubbles and float away. Bubbles when you see them in art history usually are there to remind you that they are going to pop very shortly, that they are transient and do not last forever. Another detail I love from this version of the painting is the three painted paintings (laughs) that adorn the wall callbacks to the development in art made possible by the import of exotic flowers. One of these is a garland painting, probably a nice little reference to Bruegel the Younger's father, who you'll remember invented that genre. And the other two are more traditional still lifes and a depiction of a woman with a bunch of blooms on her lap. These could also be a reference to remarks made by Jan Bruegel the Elder in his letters, where he once noted that flowers had become too expensive to be painted as plucked specimens, and he would therefore travel to Brussels to paint the flowers on site in the Archducal Park. This second painting was attributed by Klaus Ertz to Jan Bruegel the Younger in 2012, and it sold for €344,000 in 2020. He referred to the first painting we looked at, which is in the Franz Halls Museum in Harlem, as well as two additional allegories along the same lines as his references for dating this painting, um, which he dated to the 1640s. All of these paintings made use of similar symbolic allusions to convey that greed-fueled foolishness, like that of Tulip Mania, led to nothing but ruin and despair. So we've established that tulip mania wasn't actually the calamity that we've been taught to think it was. Why then was there such a market for these pictures, and why did the story of ruination at the hands of the tulip market stick? I've already quoted Anne Golgar as saying that tulips were fashionable, and people pay for fashion, and people like to make fun of people who don't succeed when they pay for fashion. In that way, I think that there is a modern comparison right at our fingertips for trying to understand why this image persisted. If you've been on the Internet in the past year, you've probably seen cryptocurrency and NFTs, a type of digital art that I'm not going to explain further take hold in certain people's brains. There was a time when you couldn't look up financial advice without being told to invest your 401k in some digital currency or another. And then came the NFT craze, which again, I I freely admit, I don't fully understand. Please don't explain it to me either, I I don't want to (laughs) know. But when the bottom fell out of these two markets, very recently in fact, what came next? Memes. Tons and tons of memes. Tweets making fun of crypto bros are some of my favorites to come across even still. And every day there's a new story of someone who, in their hubris, put $200,000 into Dogecoin only to lose it all. Just this week, there was a story circulating of a man who, in his divorce proceedings, agreed to let his wife take all of their joint investments—the pension, their real estate—while he took the cryptocurrency— Originally, he thought he was getting the upper hand, but now his crypto is worthless and he doesn't have a wife. I don't know how true this story is, it was on the internet, and it's not the guy's divorce that we're laughing at, it's the perceived folly in his short-sighted investment. Do these memes indicate that everybody in 2022 is getting financially ruined because of poor financial decisions involving cryptocurrency? No, but the stories that we are hearing are so absurd that they're being spread like wildfire. It's almost confirmation bias in a way. And I'm sure some of these are still subject to hyperbole. In short then, Bruegel the Younger's allegorical paintings were the Crypto Bro tweets of 1640. They were motivated by the same emotion that makes us enjoy trolling people who spend thousands of dollars on NFTs. There's some reasoning that we can point to for the hyperbole in both cases. In general, these are cautionary tales being couched in the language of absurdism to make them more likely to spread and stick. One of the episodes uh, discussing tulip mania in Charles McKay's 1841 work on the madness of crowds has really stuck with us and illustrates this same phenomenon perfectly. It goes something like this. A Dutch merchant offered a sailor a breakfast of red herring after he had given this merchant some good news about business. When the merchant stepped out of the kitchen, the sailor noticed something that looked like an onion lying on the counter. He liked onions, he had some herring, so he ate the onion as a relish with his herring. When the merchant came back, the sailor was stunned to learn that the onion was actually the bulb of a Semper Augustus tulip, which was rare and very expensive. The merchant sued the sailor, who was thrown in jail for months, for the crime of eating a tulip root instead of an onion. All the outlandish stories of economic ruin, such as this one, come to us by way of the Twitter of the 17th and 18th century, propaganda pamphlets. In this case, they were published by Dutch Calvinists worried that the tulip-propelled consumerism boom would lead to societal decay. These pamphleteers' insistence that such great wealth was ungodly has in many ways stayed with us even today. Historian Simon Schama writes in The Embarrassment of Riches, An Interpretation of Dutch Culture in the Golden Age, uh, that he agrees that we can partially blame tetchy Christian moralists trying to seize upon the moment to teach their contemporaries a lesson. As, quote, the prodigious quality of their success went to their heads and made them a bit queasy at the same time in Holland, it was the perfect time to slip in a bit of moralizing and prove that with great wealth came great social anxiety. The moral question at hand has been further examined by Lisa Jardine, Uh, who writes that in the contemporary imagination, the ephemeral bloom of the gorgeous tulip and the high price attached to it simply for its rarity symbolized the moral, moral dilemma of expenditure. If one accumulated wealth by legitimate means was one entitled to squander it on useless decorative rarities like paintings and tulips ought one not to dispense it more ethically on good works or invest it for the future. Anne Goldgar has identified ways that this idea has persisted, saying, quote, some of the stuff hasn't lasted, like the idea that God punishes people who are overreaching by causing them to have the plague. That's one of the things that people said in the 1630s. But the idea that you get punished if you overreach, you still hear that. It's all pride goes before the fall. So the next time you see a tweet making fun of someone who spent their children's college fund on a digital photo of a monkey in sunglasses thinking that that would be a good investment, just know that you have the 17th century moralizing propagandists to thank for the feeling that you're experiencing. Now we can't fully blame the Christians themselves for cementing the notion of tulip mania as a calamity. They weren't necessarily trying to alter the historical record, they were trying to save souls. No, the larger reason for tulip mania enduring in our collective mind was the poor source material that Charles Mackay used for his original memoir, and the fact that historians after him didn't really take the time to question his account. Goldgar has pointed out that in 17th century Holland, there was always a rich tradition of satirical poetry and song that poked fun at what, what the Dutch deemed to be moral failures. Out of that tradition came more entertaining pamphlets and poems that targeted the alleged folly of the tulip buyers, whose crime was thinking that trading in tulips would be their ticket into Dutch high society. Golgar says her problem with McKay and later writers who have relied on him, which is virtually everybody, is that he is taking a bunch of materials that are commentary and treating them as if they're factual. This would be like history books quoting Twitter as a, an accurate snapshot of the events that are taking place right now. And one of these commentaries may well have been the series of satirical paintings completed by Jan Bruegel the Younger. As the person who burst our bubble when it comes to the tulip bubble, Gogard doesn't really blame novelists and filmmakers for taking liberties with the past. We love a sensational story. But it's when... Uh, historians and economists are un- unquestioningly perpetuating a narrative that isn't accurate that we have a bigger problem. And Anne Goldgar, for the record, did not set out to be a mythbuster. She only stumbled upon the truth of Tulip Media when she sat down to look at the old documentation of the popular legend. She has said, quote, I had no way of knowing this existed before I started reading these documents. That was an unexpected treasure. I highly recommend reading uh, Anne's book, which provides many more specific anecdotes of the tulip trade than I have been able to fit into this episode. Um, That book, again, is titled Tulip Mania, Money, Honor and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age. I found my copy at my local independent bookstore, which is the Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, I would encourage you to shop local and independent instead of buying the books that I recommend from Amazon. Um, The Midtown Scholar ships, I think, worldwide. Um, So if you go to midtownscholar.us, you can browse their enormous collection of used books, which is just like so unparalleled. I also consulted um, Going Dutch, How England Plundered Holland's Glory by Lisa Chardine, which is an exploration of how Dutch material culture during the Golden Age, which is an account of how uh, Dutch material culture during the Golden Age matriculated into English culture. That is going to be all for me today. Um, Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It really, really does help me get in front of new listeners if you're interested in supporting further, I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash underscore of underscore fact. Um, I post the episodes a day early over there, as well as episode scripts and occasionally um, royal adjacent materials, so essays and things like that. Also, don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Art of History Podcast on TikTok at Art of History Pod. Um, on Twitter at Art Historic Pod. And of course, I continue to make my silly little uh, royal history videos on TikTok at Mada of Fact. That's Mata M-A-T-T-A, underscore of, underscore fact. And of course, if you have any questions or comments about this week's episode or what you would like to hear next, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the Instagram or send me a DM, or you can shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Until next time, everyone.